Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Partly sunny skies. Welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, YMCA of Metro Atlanta President and CEO Lauren Kuntz discusses phase one of reopening for the organization. We're limiting occupancy by square footage. We're limiting the time that you're in the Y to one hour. That's coming up in just a moment. Now for the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 9 a.m. today, there are 45,572 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,972. And there are 7,838 hospitalized. That's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 9 a.m. today. In related news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says nightclubs and the local pubs get ready to open. Starting June 1st, 2020, bars and nightclubs can decide to reopen if they comply with strict sanitation and social distancing rules, all crafted to reflect industry practices and mitigate health risk. To open their doors, bars and nightclubs must meet 39 mandatory measures to ensure patron well-being. Now, the governor's new executive order also allows public gatherings such as small weddings, recreational sports, and similar events, as long as social distancing rules are followed and no more than 25 people are present. Joining me now to discuss this and all the week's news related to COVID-19 here in Georgia, WABE health reporter and the host of the very popular podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose, thanks for having me. I think very popular is is subjective, but I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) I listen to it, Sam. You know, Sam, now we have another new order from Governor Kemp. Uh, It allows summer camps, summer schools, bars, nightclubs to open. But there are some restrictions, correct? And do we know how these restrictions will be enforced? Inform our listeners. Yeah, so there are lots of restrictions. And when the governor was making this announcement yesterday, he didn't go into details, but really focused on these numbers. You know, 30 restrictions if bars want to open. Uh, You know, another set if summer schools want to open. And I think you're asking the right question. This is how are all of these going to be enforced? Mm -hmm. Uh, Kemp said yesterday that he wants people to comply. He wants to run a government that actually helps people understand what compliance looks like. And he threw out this number that upwards of 90% of folks are following these rules. Um, I don't know where that number comes from. Uh, what, what, What he really focused on is the fact that local law enforcement does have the control to and educate people when they're saying not following the rules. Um, the governor pointed out that some mayors of cities had been taking action to make sure people are complying. And what the governor really focused on yesterday is that people need to report these violations for anything to be done about them. And and, and that seems like a, a kind of high standard to meet because one, you have to hope that people know what all these rules are. Are you gonna study up on these before you go out for an, a night with your friends, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think there's this real question of are people gonna be educated enough to know when they see a violation. Um, And two, I have to think that it's this question of, do people agree that these rules are necessary? Mm -hmm. If you're not wearing a mask yourself, if you don't think you need to stay six feet away from someone and you see someone else not not doing that or like an establishment that's not providing enough space, you're not gonna report that. And Sam, that date again is June, what, 1st? It's June 1st for uh, most, I I believe that's when bars, performance venues and summer schools um, are, are going to be allowed to, to start opening up again. Wow, we shall wait and see. Now, Sam, the governor also announced changes to the way the Georgia Department of Public Health is reporting data. Take a listen. Dr. Toomey and her team at Public Health continue to work with our private sector partners to streamline these new processes 
and ensure our testing data is timely as well as accurate. Starting next week, Public Health will move to a daily 3 p.m. update on the COVID-19 website. This change will give them more time to coordinate with healthcare facilities and providers to verify information and check its accuracy before publication. Oh, Sam, what do you make of this? So a few things here. I actually spoke last week with Dr. Melanie Thompson about this very issue. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an AIDS researcher here in Atlanta. Sure. And, and she told me that once a day, an update once a day is actually fine with her. You know, I, I think in today's world, we maybe have this expectation that numbers and data are always available, but there's a lot of work that has to happen behind the scenes to make that data available. Um, I, I do think this is an acknowledgement though from, from the governor that the Georgia Department of Public Health simply doesn't have the resources to do this kind of work and to do it really well to provide multiple updates, um, you know, different times throughout the day of a bunch of different data points, which I think is a sign of how the state has invested in this agency over the years, right? With something like this, you really get what you pay for. I think it's also important to note the city of Atlanta has launched its own kind of landing page for COVID data, mm-hmm. you know, tracking their reopening process. Um, and, and the city, instead of building their own data dashboard, like the Georgia Department of Public Health did, the city is simply using the one from Johns Hopkins University, right? So it's just a real sign that this is a big investment. If you want to have this data available and have it updated regularly, it's just a lot of work to make that happen. And Sam, I'm curious how much of this is related to the governor and public health officials wanting to ensure accuracy and also instill confidence and trust you know, for Georgians that their information is accurate. I think it's balancing two different needs, right? The need to show the public that you're on top of things, but then also the need to actually have the public trust your data. We saw over the last few weeks the Department of Public Health um, make a few, you know, we can call them errors, we can call mm-hmm. them missteps, whatever, whatever, however you want to frame them. Um, and I really wonder if those would have happened if the Department of Public Health had been more deliberate about actually, you know, updating their page a little bit less and really taking the time to kind of double check everything. Um, you know, I think this question of trust is really important. Public health officials need the general public to follow their advice. Their Mm -hmm. health advice can really help save lives. And they're potentially undercutting that public trust if they're making, you know, unforced errors on how they display data. Um, Maybe unforced errors is, again, not how some people would would, would characterize it. but, But I think they're being more deliberate in taking the time to actually check, you know, dot their I's and cross their T's, I think could could have a, a big effect on how much the public trusts their other messaging. Well, Sam, and a big part of that data is obviously the the continuing number of confirmed cases. I think that's what everyone pays attention to, obviously to the deaths too. But Georgia saw a rise in confirmed COVID-19 cases. Now, we don't know, is it from when the state reopened? Well, so the, the governor has been asked this question a few times it's about mid-May that we're seeing this, this rise in cases again. The governor has said on multiple occasions um, that this comes actually from a big dump of test results that a, a private lab uh, returned into the state. When the governor was asked about this yesterday, he said he didn't see anything disturbing in these numbers. Again, he attributed it to this kind of data backlog being cleared up. But some public health experts like Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University, he said in a media briefing yesterday that Yes, it could be the case this backlog was being cleared up while cases are actually rising at the same time. And kind of his take on it was it's not surprising that as the state is opening more, we are going to see an increase in cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is really the thing about the numbers, right? You can look at a number and a number itself doesn't necessarily tell you the whole story. Now, Sam, also this week, the Georgia Department of Public Health announced it was given out another batch of the antiviral drug remdesivir to hospitals to treat COVID-19 patients. Now, this treatment, this drug has not been approved by the FDA, correct? But what's happening correct. here? 
So remdesivir, this was a drug that was originally developed to fight Ebola, um, but it didn't perform uh, very well against that viral disease. Um, in COVID-19, in limited studies, this, this drug has been shown to shorten the recovery time for seriously ill patients by about four days when compared to a, a, a placebo. Again, these are very initial studies. At this point, like you mentioned, the FDA has only approved this for emergency use. It's not mm -hmm. approved for anyone and everyone, um, really only people who are very, very sick. And the company that makes this drug um, actually donated its initial supply to patients all over the US and gave the federal government the kind of job of, of, of handing it out. So. This week, the State Department of Public Health has passed out another one of these shipments of this drug to hospitals. They've, they've done a few before. Um, but, but again, it's really important to understand that any positive results that have been seen in patients on this drug are very, very, very preliminary. And so, you know, it's, it's great that, that hospitals potentially have this other tool on hand to help patients who are very sick, but we just truly don't know um, if this drug is effective for everybody, um, we, we, we just don't know enough about it at this point to say this is kind of a knockout antiviral drug for COVID-19. Mm. And finally, Sam, as we wrap up, uh, many are calling it a sad and tragic milestone. But this week, the total number of COVID-19 related deaths in the U.S. surpassed 100,000. You've been covering this from the beginning. Your reflections on this and where Georgia is on the curve? Are we flattening the curve at all? Sure. You brought up Georgia. We'll start there. So Georgia this week, I don't know if this will happen uh, today or, or tomorrow. Uh, Georgia soon will hit 2000 deaths here in the state, right? So we have these, these two milestones that for, for me really just make me think about each one of those 2000 people here in Georgia, each one of those 100,000 people in the U.S., that's a person with a, a, a family who loves them that who, who, you know, who have lost someone that they love here. And I think it's important, Rose, to note that these numbers um, in all likelihood are, are, are under counts of how many people have actually died from COVID-19. You know, top U.S. health officials like Dr. Tony Fauci have pointed that out. We, we just don't have a great infrastructure here in the country to track everyone who truly has fallen victim to this virus. So where are we on this curve? You know, Dr. Fauci also this week said a second wave or a, a third wave doesn't have to be an inevitability. Uh, there are actions that we can take, you know, wearing a mask in public, for instance, that really do have this effect of potentially saving lives. And so, you know, I think it's important to, to just really remember, yes, we, we've reached the, these milestones this week, we've had 100,000 deaths here in the country. Those are 100,000 families for whom this crisis, this pandemic that we're in is so starkly real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I just think it's important to, to note that there are people for whom this truly has, you know, fundamentally changed their lives. And so, yes, it might be inconvenient to wear a mask in public. Um, it might be uncomfortable, uh, but, you know, for me, I think about, well, who are you doing that for? Mm -hmm. um, and it's these people for whom, you know, this is this is a really serious matter. You know, I've used the analogy before, and I don't mind sharing. You know, I'm a big sports fan. You know that. And imagine being at one of the biggest college football stadiums. You've got over 100,000 people there. And imagine walking out and then you come back and they're all gone. That's the, the number, you know. Yeah. And I mean, the, the way the New York Times put it in their their, uh, you know, big package this last weekend about this was 100,000 people is larger than some small cities. Mm -hmm. And for me, I just really think, yes, a, a college football stadium of people disappearing, but also just the way that these are 100,000 families mm -hmm. impacted. So, so okay. Rose, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, maybe they've been sheltering at homes, maybe they've been inconvenienced by this pandemic. If this pandemic feels abstract to you, that's really a sign of, of, of how lucky you are, uh, because I think what these numbers really point out to us is there are 100,000 families, at least here in the U.S., for whom the coronavirus and, and this disease is just a very stark, concrete reality. Well said. WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead. Sam, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. Stay safe. Thanks, Rose. You too. 
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. An organization with origins dating back to 1844 and prides itself for serving communities through programs and services that aim to build your spirit, mind, and body. We call it the YMCA. And the YMCA of Metro Atlanta has recently opened several of its facilities following Governor Brian Kemp's decision to lift Georgia's shelter-in-place order and reopen the state's economy. But despite being open, the YMCA is operating under new protocols and procedures to keep staff and members safe. Joining me now with more is Lauren Kuntz. She's the president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. Lauren, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. It's good to be back with you. You know, last time when we were talking about your initiatives, uh, it's been a little bit over a year ago, April of 2019, your name president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. Along with your team, y'all had goals and a strategic plan, but there's nothing that can prepare you for a pandemic. You know, that's exactly right. Um, I think when I took the role, I accepted it. Like any new leader, you start thinking about what are the things that you want to do for the organization and how do you want to guide it into the future? And that was really the focus over the last year was, you know, building a strong leadership team, really exploring the community needs and listening and trying to understand where we were needed most and how we were needed most. And then like a lot of organizations, the middle of March comes and we have to completely shift what we're doing. And I would say that personally, I went from a mindset of change management uh, to one of crisis management, like everybody else did. And we very quickly had to uh, make decisions to close our branches to close our early learning sites and our after-school sites in accordance with the school districts that we serve. And um, that happened very quickly. I mean, we were uh, on, on a Wednesday, I'll never forget, Wednesday, March 11th, we are talking about potentially what closing could look like by Friday, March 13th, we have closed the early learning centers and the after-school sites. And by uh, the end of the day on uh, that next Monday, we had closed all of the branches. That really kicked off true crisis mode in terms of trying to understand not only how we would navigate and survive this pandemic as an organization, because I see my role as truly a steward. Um, it's my job to ensure the long-term sustainability and relevance of this organization uh, beyond anyone who's here right now so that it can continue to do great work in the communities. Um, but it also was a moment that we as a leadership team had to ask ourselves, how are we going to step into this moment mm -hmm. and really serve community? And so we, we came up with a couple of really, I think, unique programs. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But I do want to stay with what you all were going through and what you were presented with. Were there some layoffs, Lauren? We did. Um, that was well, it was the worst day of my professional life. Um, not that it's certainly about me. It's about the people that were most impacted. Yeah, you know, basically when you close your doors, the, the, the why is very interesting. It's, I would say it's very similar to arts organizations in town or the zoo or, or other places where we are a nonprofit and a portion of our annual revenue comes from philanthropic giving. Mm -hmm. But really the the what keeps our doors open, what keeps our programs running and our staff employed is earned revenue from membership and program fees. And, you know, we mounted a very vigorous campaign from, from the first day that we closed our doors to talk about when you stick with the why, you're allowing us to do the type of programming that the community needs during this crisis. But, you know, people, everybody's been impacted in some way. And we have lost um, about 28% of our membership revenue and program fees with our doors closed uh, during the time they were closed and still uh, at this point as well. So when you see that swift downturn in terms of um, 
basically the dollars coming in the door, you're, you're forced to make really challenging decisions for the organization. So um, all of our uh, staff, all of our full-time staff that did stay on, we all took pay cuts, we all took benefit cuts immediately. Um, but with our doors closed, we did not have work for our part-time staff. And so we were unfortunately forced to um, lay staff off. We made the decision to, to do that um, early on because we really wanted our employees to have access to benefits and be able to, to you know, secure benefits early. Mm-hmm. Um, we felt like that was the, the best thing that we could do. And now, thank goodness, as we begin to slowly reopen with, with all of our safety protocols in place, we're, we're bringing folks back. And so that's been um, such a great joy is to be able to, to bring people back as, as we are able to open our doors again. How many centers, locations, childcare centers total do y'all have in this region? So in the YMC of Metro Atlanta, we have 18 um, Y family membership facilities that you think of with the pool and a basketball court and the wellness program and children's programming. Um, we have two standalone youth and teen centers, one uh, in the Midtown area, kind of West Midtown area, and then one in East Lake. We have 13 early learning centers. Um, we have about 40 after school sites and we have two resident camps. Mm-hmm. And as you all are in the process of this phases for reopening, what's the plan here? So just about the same time that we were ramping down all operations in mid-March and looking at, you know, how could we serve community during our closing, we were already thinking about what did we need to learn? Who did we need to talk to? Who were the experts that we needed to consult that when we could begin to think about a reopen plan, that it would be done thoughtfully, very measured, and with safety first. We've been in conversations with the CDC. We've obviously been looking at the city of Atlanta guidelines, the state of Georgia guidelines. Um, I talk with CEOs of WISE around the country daily. And so there's a great network to really begin to kind of think about that. So we were not ever in thinking that we were going to kind of throw our doors open for all of our WISE because we knew we had a lot to learn. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to take kind of a phased approach. So we wanted to do that regionally so that every member of a Y, because if you're a member of one Y in Atlanta, you're a member of all Ys in Atlanta. So we wanted to make sure that we took a regional approach that any member who felt comfortable with the safety protocols we had in place could reasonably get to a Y that was in our initial um, phase one opening. So on um, May 15th, we opened seven locations with a regional approach. Now, what we did before that that I thought was really, really helpful, and I actually would recommend this to anybody who's thinking about how they're going to reopen if they haven't done so already, not just a wellness space, but really anything, is on May 13th and 14th, leading up to May 15th, we did um, soft openings at all seven of those locations where we invited some of our local branch advisory board members, um, kind of why super users, the people that were calling us every day saying, when are you going to open? Mm-hmm. Um, and other staff from different branches. And we invited them to come in and go through the member experience. And I did the exact same thing, really journey mapping it and asking them, you know, what is this experience like for you? How, you know, how, how do you feel? And so we were able to make some, you know, course corrections and really learn in real time so that when we opened those seven locations on Friday, February 15th, we felt very confident about where we were. And it has gone very smoothly. On Wednesday, we opened up phase two. That's another five additional locations. Did the same thing, had a soft opening the day prior. And then we'll open some additional wise uh, next week on June 2nd with a soft opening on June 1st. So um, let, let me, let me, I hate to interrupt you because I know someone listening not- saying, okay, but Lauren, take me through what procedures and precautions you all have for me. There's so much made about wearing masks, social distancing. I'm at a YMCA in an enclosed area with so many other people. What have y'all implemented for me as a member or a potential member? Can you take our listeners through that? Yeah, thank you for asking. So we have a fantastic operations team and they literally over the past month, they walked every single facility we have and came up with a custom plan for each facility. We based our occupancy of no more than 25% occupancy of any location based on the general square footage. So when you come to a Y, 
we're going to ask you to do a pre-check online. You can do that on your phone and you're going to ask, you know, you're going to answer some questions. Um, and once you've done that, you can come up to the outside of the Y. We will have a staff person um, who has a mask on um, and they're going to take your temperature and they're going to ask you a few more questions. And then based on that, you are able to come into the Y. All members are going to be asked to wear masks in common areas. Um, the only place that you're not wearing a mask is when you're actually on a machine and working out or if you're doing lap swim. Um, so again, we're limiting occupancy by square footage. Uh, we're limiting the time that you're in the Y to one hour. Um, you can come in and utilize the wellness spaces. Um, our, all of our um, mach machines have been socially distanced. There's signage on ones in between. Um, so every space has been blocked off to, uh, to ensure social distancing. All of our staff are going to be wearing masks at all times. We are allowing people to do lap swim by online pre-registration. The same thing with group exercise. We've gone through and basically in any group exercise room based on the size, we've blocked off exactly where people can stand and limited the number of people in that room based on the square footage. Everything is going to be done with a phased approach, safety first, ensuring social distancing. Some people have said, well, why, why can't I bring my kids in right away? We're, it, it's not that we don't want to have children in the building. Honestly, we just have to manage our staff's bandwidth and our ability to open in a really um, measured safety first way. So it's, it's really about asking our members to give us a little bit of grace to implement um, these protocols and guidelines that we have taken from the state, the city, the CDC, so that we can do this in a way that ensures their wellness as well as our own staff. The voice you hear is Lauren Kuntz. She's president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. We're talking about the Y's phased reopening. So Lauren, I want to be clear because you have a lot of family centers. So are you saying right now that you all would rather for families not to be part of this phase one? So right now, and as we get our through next week, we are going to, we're just having um, those 18 and older. We are starting day camp on June 1st. And that's a really important thing. Um, I really believe that one of the biggest barriers, you know, outside of COVID, one of the biggest barriers for people to be able to work is safe, affordable childcare. And that's exactly what our day camps are in the summer. And so we feel really strongly that it's the wise um, responsibility to offer safe, affordable childcare so people can work. So on June 1st, we are um, opening our day camp locations as well. And so that's online right now. You can go to ymcaatlanta.org. We um, already have people registering for multiple weeks over the course of the summer. Again, all protocols are in place, social distancing, taking temperatures, um, you know, grouping by age and stage. So, you know, all the same things that we're looking at doing in our uh, branch facilities, it's the same sort of things that we're doing within our youth programs. So are you limiting the number of youth you all can take, though? We are, so we're limiting capacity, we're limiting or we're reducing the ratios of campers to counselors. Um, and so, you know, what's really interesting is, is as we um, you know, closed our branches back in March and really started thinking about how can we serve community, one of the ways that we did that was by standing up uh, emergency childcare for health professionals and first responders, those working at grocery stores and warehouses, those who had to have childcare to be able to work so that we could all shelter in place. And so we were able over the course of two, the last two and a half months to serve 3000 children mm -hmm. of those individuals. We've learned so much during that time. So really our day camp program is an extension of what we've been doing for the last two and a half months. We're just expanding the number of locations, but first we're ensuring that the healthcare professionals and first responders have a spot before we open it up to anyone else. And I'm sure they greatly appreciated that um, during this time. Lauren, what about if folks have some concerns, if the numbers continue to increase, if we see another surge, you all might need to make a decision to close again. What will be your deciding factor in all of that? You know, I think what I've really learned over the past, you know, two and a half months is the why may be 
a large organization that's geographically diverse with multiple programs, but boy, can we be agile and nimble. Um, we can we can shift quickly to, to shut down. We can shift quickly to stand up critical programs and we can begin to, to move towards a, a thoughtful reopen. Um, and so we, you know, we're all living in this space uh, in real time and decisions have to be made uh, with the information, the best information you have in the moment with all precautions. So absolutely, if we feel that we cannot safely serve our members in the community and, and the youth that, that we work with, then we will, we will pull back. Um, I, you know, you and I talked about when I came on the show, I think last July, that, you know, the core values of the Y are caring, honesty, respect, and responsibility. Mm-hmm. And I tell you, I feel a tremendous amount of responsibility to our communities. And, um, you know, we will do what is right for our communities and make sure that, that we always lead with safety um, first for, for everyone that we serve. That is just so critical. We have held the public's trust for so long and we earn that every day. I would never um, want us to do anything that, um, you know, would, was not with, uh, with safety first and foremost. For those members who may have lost their job, through layoffs or furloughs, are you all able to offer any assistance or give them a grace period for paying their membership fees? Uh, are you all able to offer anything? So, Rose, as you know, we have, we've never turned anyone away for inability to pay. So we scholarship uh, people in. We've been raising money even when we've been closed specifically for the fact that we know that more people will need financial assistance. Coming to a why is not just about working out. It's about uh, a sense of community. It's about not feeling isolated. It's good for your mental health to get back into a routine. When you come in, talk with one of our membership folks and tell them what's going on. And we want to help you. Um, the other thing that I would share is, is in addition to the emergency child care program that we set up early on in the COVID crisis, we also expanded our food programming in partnership with the Atlanta Community Food Bank and Open Hand and so many other partners. You know, a lot of people think, well, I didn't know the why, you know, was involved in in food distribution. We serve cradle to grave. When you touch every socioeconomic group in a community, you are in the food business. During quote unquote normal times, we're serving hot breakfast and lunch for 3,000 children in our early learning programs every day. And we're, you know, serving in many cases, hot dinners and backpacks full of food for the kids in our after school programs. Many of our wives do fresh fruit and produce um, for seniors in the community. And many of our wives go out into extended stay motels and mobile home parks and provide food uh, in some of our suburban and exurban communities as well. But what we began to see, like everyone, was that we needed to increase what we were doing. And so through those partnerships, we turned our YMCA sites into an infrastructure uh, distribution. And so we just surpassed last week, I think last Friday, we just surpassed 125,000 meals Mm -hmm. that have been served at a YMCA location to the community in the past two and a half months. And that could not have been done without the critical partnerships of everybody from the community food bank, um, open hand, the Braves. We've been doing a program where the Braves are cooking food that they would have served at Truist Park, and we're distributing it to families in needs in our in our community. Uh, the Atlanta Falcons Youth Foundation, working with them to employ restaurant workers so they're not laid off to continue to cook and distribute it through our branch system. Um, and that's not going away. Even as we begin to reopen our branches and our programs, through this phased approach, we're still doing all of this food work. And what I would also say is if someone needs food, come to a Y. We can figure out how to get food to you and your family. We can help you. Lauren, as we wrap up on the day of this interview, the U.S. has just surpassed 100,000 people who've died due to COVID-19. As you reflect on that in this current state that we're all in, what's been your takeaway from all of this? Well, I certainly, you know, it's interesting. We were in a strategic planning process before this all started. We were doing focus groups in our communities, talking to our partners, um, you know, really having deep conversation about how does the why, um, you know, what what do we look like in the future? 
as I've shared with you in the past, you know, the, the mission of the why to build healthy mind, body, and spirit is not fundamentally changed throughout our history. But the question we have to ask ourselves continually is, what does that mean? What does it mean to build healthy mind, body, spirit in 2020 and beyond? And now those, that thought process and those conversations have been fully informed by COVID. And so I think, you know, when I think about mind, body, and spirit, I begin to think a lot more about what programs can we partner with others around social and emotional health? How can we help lift up the health disparities that are happening in our community as it relates to minorities? We have seen, we all knew that, but now there's a light that's being, you know, shined on that through this crisis. You know, how do we partner? And the, the future of the why, quite frankly, is not in building more standalone YMCAs. It's in working with partners to say, what can the why bring and what can someone else bring to create, you know, really community centers, collaboration centers, where we're thinking about holistic health of people. And I think the why will will be a part of that and lead in that way. Lauren Kuntz, president and CEO of the YMCA of Metro Atlanta. And we've been talking about the Y's phase reopening and the services that they are providing. Lauren, as always, good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Rose. Stay well and stay strong. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We've worked from home, some of us. We've had to adjust to the notion of this new normal, whatever that is. We've watched our favorite neighborhood restaurants, bars, indoor cycling spots, and yes, our favorite coffee shops all have to shutter for some months. But now, as businesses slowly come back online, here's a question. What businesses have been booming during this time? Well, how about the package and delivery giants? How about the online shopping giants? Of course, anybody who invested in the online meeting companies such as Zoom, they're all doing okay. There's a lot to unpack regarding the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on a lot of different sectors, but especially the nation's supply chain and logistics, as well as when will the retail industry bounce back? Well, joining me now with his insight and expertise, he's a regular contributor to Closer Look, John Haber, CEO of Atlanta-based Spend Management Experts. John, good to talk to you again. Good to see you. What have you been doing during this time? I understand y'all have a new puppy? <laughs> yes. Yep. We've got a new puppy uh, and uh, we've been homeschooling. Glad to have school finally over. I'm pretty good at logistics and supply chain. I don't have a career, future career as a school teacher, uh, <laughs> but uh, we, we made it work and I'm happy to announce that second graders moving into third grade and uh, the preschooler is going to make it to kindergarten. So You mean you couldn't handle second grade math, John? <laughs> the, the math was, you know, I, the math was okay. The literacy and going through adjectives and adverbs and, and, and nouns, I had to re-educate myself on just basic grammar, which uh, <laughs> lets you know how old I am. Let's begin here because, you know, at the time of this conversation, we're coming off news that, that one of the nation's largest employers, Boeing, John, will actually lay off and buy out more than 12,000 jobs. And and they revealed more cuts would be coming. Now, this sent a shockwave because as the nation is slowly reopening, we're still hearing about layoffs. And this is from a major, major company here. What do you make of that? It's really sort of the second wave of layoffs that we're starting to see. And Boeing is obviously impacted because there's still people are still not traveling mm-hmm. very much. The airlines uh, are all pretty dire situations. They've obviously gotten some funding through the various legislation that's been passed, but Boeing in, in particular, if people are not traveling, then then they're impacted because people don't need the planes. Well, and here's something that's related to that. If folks aren't traveling, they're probably not staying anywhere. And here's a direct line from hotel management. It reads, quote, the American Hotel and Lodging Association released new data showing that 70% of hotel employees have been laid off or furloughed as Eight in 10 hotel rooms across the nation remain empty, John, as another industry has taken a huge, huge financial loss. Yeah, the hospitality industry is being particularly impacted. Uh, Hotels, 
restaurants, uh, you look at like Airbnb, they are all being severely impacted and it's going to be a while before things pick up uh, in the hospitality side of things. Well, that's interesting that you say that because although businesses are slowly opening, and analysts and experts, and you may agree, I'm going to ask you in a moment, they say it will take well into 2021 before consumer spending comes even close to where it was before America had to shut down. Could they be wrong? Is there a silver lining before 2021? I don't think so. Obviously, we're kind of on the front end of seeing how things are picking up because we see how much our clients are shipping. And we have a number of clients in the hospitality industry, and we're just not seeing the pickup there. Where we're seeing really e-com, our e-com clients, some of them are have exploded with growth. Well, if we can shift now to some of that positive, if you will, it's estimated nearly 80% of U.S. consumers are even just shopping online for groceries since this whole COVID-19 outbreak. Obviously, that's good news for one particular industry. Is it likely they will sustain this through the next quarter as well? Yes, we we believe that it will stick. As consumers have gotten used to now uh, ordering things online, just like groceries and basic household supplies, we think that the grocery sector has been an area where it's been very slow to adopt buying online. You know, only 5% of grocery purchases had been done online. Mm -hmm. But now that people are doing it, we think that that's going to stick and that will remain. And we expect volumes to to continue to be very robust on the e-com side. Well, John, you know, businesses, sometimes they have a plan for certain disruptions, uh, natural disasters, conflict in certain regions of the world, trade wars. You and I have had plenty of conversations about that. But in your world of supply management, what have been those alarms brought on by the pandemic that really have presented some challenges, if any, even in your industry? Shippers are, yeah, they're enjoying some great financial gain here, but this caught everybody off guard, let's be clear. It did. And what it what it exposed is uh, our reliance on uh, Asia and it's more specifically China, mm-hmm. uh, for medical devices, pharmaceuticals. It's kind of astounding that we, we don't even make penicillin in the United States anymore. And right now, there's a, we're having problems getting uh, imports in from China just because of the lack of capacity. There were, we're also having some political troubles that are behind the scenes that are delaying goods coming into the U.S. with obviously with the tensions right now between the Trump administration and the Chinese administration on tariffs. Just who's responsible for the pandemic? It's not it's not helping uh, the supply chain in bringing goods into the U.S. I like how you put that political troubles. But listen, China is ahead of the U.S. in recovering. But do you think they'll deliver on those trade promises because the imports are so important to the U.S.? Or how do you see this playing out? It's a great dilemma, honestly. And they're holding some cards. They've got some leverage. And what we're seeing is that many companies from a risk management standpoint were unprepared. They did not have backup plans in case something like this happened and you know a lot of companies are scrambling it's great that the manufacturing has picked up back in, in back in china and uh, in, in most of the asian countries but it, it's it's very expensive right now to bring in goods there are surcharges that are now mm-hmm. uh, being applied by ups by fedex by dhl which are making imports very expensive to bring in what are those questions your clients have been asking of you all or the challenges they've been facing? Many of them are desperately seeking solutions to get goods into the into the country. We, I mean, if you look at some of the, the major cities in China, if you look at the airports, there's cargo that is just piled up mm-hmm. and it's taking weeks just to get the goods into the country and sending it ocean is not going to work. We need the products now. And so it needs to be air freighted, which is very expensive. 
but there's cargo that's just literally sitting there waiting to be shipped in. Meanwhile, a company that you and I talk a lot about, Amazon, of course, they've been doing pretty well. They've also been criticized for their lack of or slow response to protecting their employees, especially those working in the fulfillment and distribution centers. But I understand Amazon also just leased more than 1.1 million <laughs> square feet of, of space here in the Atlanta area. What do you know about this deal? Yeah, I mean, Amazon just uh, continues to have explosive growth. They're, they were not prepared for this situation. They had major delays. Uh, they had to extend their shipping policies. Uh, they had to stop they stopped allowing certain goods to be shipped into their fulfillment centers mm-hmm. because we're we're operating at peak season volumes right now with Amazon, with UPS, with FedEx. Their networks have been overwhelmed. FedEx had put has put volume caps on a lot of their large retail clients. They're limiting the amount of volume that can be shipped because the network is overwhelmed. They just can't handle it? Even with using United States Postal Service, and I know someone out there saying, oh, come on, Rose. Now, that's not all hate on United States Postal Service, but with United States Postal Service, FedEx, UPS, there's just too much volume. If you look back to 2019, when you have peak season volumes, UPS hires, they hired 100,000 temporary workers last year for peak season, FedEx, uh, similar hiring. And so the volumes have returned to those levels, but the the staffing is not in place Mm. to to process all the volume. And the the profiles have shifted tremendously where 70 to 80% of the shipments are residential shipments. Those are more expensive. They take more time to deliver there's not as many packages being delivered on that last mile, and that's creating a lot of headaches and a lot of problems for the transportation providers. John, is it too soon, though, to think how all this might affect the holiday shipping and shopping season? Every year I look forward to talking to you about the holiday shopping and consumer spending It's May, and I'm asking you this question now, obviously because we're in a pandemic. Is it too soon to think that the holiday shipping and shopping season is going to be at its lowest in a really, really long time? Yes, there's no doubt that it's going to be, we're still going to have very slow retail sales. Uh, If you look at the retail sales in April, the numbers are alarming. Yeah. Uh, We do have a lot of states reopening. Georgia actually has really led the way in, in reopening but you're not seeing a lot of people in the stores. And there's a lot more losers than winners. If you look at the bankruptcies, Damian Marcus, J. Crew, mm-hmm. uh, Pier One is shutting down all their stores, JC Penney, uh, Stage Stores, all bankruptcy. Many, Several of those are clients of ours. And so many of them were in uh, financial trouble before COVID hit. But this has really exacerbated the timing and the demise of many of these big box retailers. Well, and John, finally, as we wrap up, if the U.S., because currently, sadly, at the time of this conversation, the U.S. has surpassed 100,000 deaths due to COVID-19. And if the numbers, if the trend continues where maybe numbers, that that number goes up, You know, that will affect consumer habit. We've had conversations about consumer habit and how that reflects to consumer spending. If there is a surge, another surge, how long will it take for this nation's economy to right itself? If there is a surge, it will it could be devastating. You know, I'm I'm optimistic that's not going to happen. But if we see big increases and states have to shut down you'll see the unemployment levels rise to levels that we've never seen. Uh, And so states need to be smart about what they're doing. And looking back at, you know, Memorial Day in some areas, it seems like people, they're not practicing social distancing. Well, let me ask you this. Did 
did Georgia reopen too soon? If you look at the Georgia numbers, it doesn't look like it. It, it looks like things are on a downward trend. The numbers are really hard to interpret, mm -hmm. to be honest with you, because things are being misclassified as COVID that are not COVID related. Now, how do you know A lot that? of that has to do with the insurance reimbursement. Now, how do you know uh, that, you John? Have... How, how do you know that? <laughs> I know it because I'm on the board of advisors of the Chamber of Commerce, and I, I'm on a call with them every week. And you've got the CEO from Grady Hospital that is on there, the, the CEO of Piedmont Hospital, and we're getting live updates on what's happening. But we know uh, in looking at the numbers that the numbers are fuzzy. They're, they're very fuzzy. Are we talking on, about the numbers in terms of confirmed cases or deaths? Yes, yes. Hmm. The number of confirmed cases, uh, the number of deaths. Uh, there is a lot of stuff that is being attributed uh, to COVID that frankly shouldn't be. And so while it's, while it's over 100,000, we're just not sure that's the real number. So whether it's national or Georgia, you believe that maybe the numbers don't tell the whole story? You think the numbers are too yes. high? I think we think the numbers are too high. In some cases, we also think that uh, the number of people that are potentially infected are understated because the, there have been terrible problems with the testing availability. Sure. So we, we think that the number of deaths that are being attributed to COVID uh, are overstated. We think the number of people that have been infected are vastly understated. So we went from talking supply chain and logistics to medical. John Haber, he discusses it all. John Haber, CEO of Atlanta-based Spin Management. It's great to, to see you and speak with you. Stay safe, stay healthy. And I suppose you want people to ship more, huh? We're all about shipping, you know. <laughs> I would encourage people to order online and ship. Oh, stop. <laughs> I'll encourage people to support your local businesses. <laughs> hey, John, take Absolutely. Hey, John, take care. I appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me. All right, take care of that puppy. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.